Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... The Sociology of Longevity Drugs. But first up, here's the news. The Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology is shared for the development of two anti-parasite drugs, one against roundworm infections and the other against malaria infections. William C. Campbell and Satoshi Omura discovered a new drug, avamectin, the derivatives of which have radically lowered the incidence of river blindness and lymphatic filariasis, also known as elephantiasis, and other parasitic diseases. UU2 discovered artemisinin, a drug that has significantly reduced the death rate for patients suffering from malaria. These two discoveries help fight diseases that affect hundreds of millions of people every year. Parasitic worms, or helminths, are estimated to afflict about a third of the world's population and are particularly prevalent in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia and Central and South America. River blindness and lymphatic filariasis are two diseases caused by parasitic worms. River blindness causes chronic inflammation in the cornea that leads to a loss of sight. Lymphatic filariasis, afflicting more than 100 million people around the world, causes chronic swelling and leads to lifelong stigmatising and disabling clinical symptoms, including elephantiasis, which results in gross enlargement and disfigurement of the arms and legs of its victims. Japanese microbiologist Satoshi Omura focused on a group of bacteria Streptomyces, which lives in the soil and was known to produce a large number of agents with antibacterial activities including streptomycin, which was discovered by Selman Waxman, who won the 1952 Nobel Prize for his efforts. Omura isolated new strains of streptomyces from soil samples and cultured them in the laboratory. From many thousands of different bacterial cultures, he selected about 50 of the most promising and tested their activity against harmful microorganisms. William C. Campbell, an expert in parasite biology working in America, acquired Amura's streptomyces cultures and tested them. Campbell showed that a component from one of the cultures was very efficient against parasites in domestic and farm animals. The bioactive agent was purified and named avamectin, which was then chemically modified to a more effective compound called ivermectin. 
Ivermectin was later tested in humans with parasitic infections and effectively killed parasitic larvae. Collectively, Amura and Campbell's contributions led to the discovery of a new class of drugs with a lot of power against parasitic diseases. Malaria is a mosquito-borne disease caused by single-cell parasites, which invade red blood cells causing fever and, in severe cases, brain damage and death. More than 3.4 billion of the world's most vulnerable citizens are at risk of contracting malaria, and each year it kills more than 450,000 people, mostly children. Malaria was traditionally treated by chloroquine or quinine, but with declining success. By the late 1960s, efforts to eradicate malaria had failed and the disease was on the rise. At that time, UU2 in China turned to traditional Chinese herbal medicine. From a large-scale screening of herbal remedies in malaria-infected animals, she found that an extract from the sweet wormwood plant Artemisia annua was an interesting candidate. However, the results were inconsistent, so she went back to the ancient literature and saw that the active ingredient needed to be extracted with cold water rather than hot water. She guessed that the heat would damage the compound. Two was the first to show that this component, later called artemisinin, was highly effective against the malaria parasite, both in infected animals and in humans. Artemisinin represents a new class of anti-malarial agents that rapidly kill the malaria parasites at an early stage of their development, making it very powerful in the treatment of severe malaria. Artemisia annua, or sweet wormwood, contrasts against Artemisia absinthium, or absinthe wormwood, which is used to make the powerfully alcoholic liqueur absinthe. The 60% alcohol content was responsible for its reputation in causing madness. Absinthe was used by Napoleon's troops as an anti-malarial treatment when they were unable to get quinine from the South American cinchona bark in Angostura bitters and other herbal liqueurs. Absinthe wormwood was also a medieval European remedy for ringworm, which is actually a fungal infection and not a worm infection at all. The biosynthesis of artemisinin, with genetically engineered yeast, is politically controversial because it cuts out sweet wormwood farmers in Africa and Asia and can be seen as the corporate co-option of a traditional herbal remedy. Artemisinin may not be as fun as 60% alcoholic absinthe, but it's more effective. It's been a long wait for these Nobel winners, all three of whom are now in their 80s. Are you interested in our quantum future? Come to a public question and answer debate on the role that quantum technologies will play in our future at the Powerhouse Museum in Ultimo, Sydney on October 22nd at 5.30pm. Come and ask your own questions and hear the discussion from a panel of international experts. Dave Wecker from Microsoft Research, Luke Urabari from Lockheed Martin, Rayo Johnson from QX Branch, Gabriel Molina Teresa from Macquarie University, Gavin Brennan from Macquarie University, Jonathan Dowling from Louisiana State University, and Fedor Jalezko from the University of Ulm. Seating is strictly limited, so reserve your place. Go to science.mq.edu.au slash quantum and book a seat. The talk is free. Or if astronomy is more your thing and you'd like to hear Professor Michael Burton from the University of New South Wales talk about his crowdfunded galactic exploration, mapping the molecular clouds of the southern Milky Way. 
He'll be at the Trinity Grammar School Professional Development Centre in Lewisham on Tuesday, November 17th at 6.30pm. He'll be talking about his research into organic molecular clouds in the Delta Quadrant of the Milky Way. This is also a free talk. I'll put up links to the Galactic Exploration Talk and our quantum future on this episode's page on diffusionradio.com. Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dr. Casimir McGregor is a sociologist at the School of Social Sciences at Monash University. He's currently engaged in two projects. One is a sociological treatment of the anti-aging treatment market. The dynamics of expectation. The other project is High Risk, High Hopes, a study of stem cell tourism in Australia. A lot of his work is around biopolitics and biological citizenship. He contacted me to interview me for his research, since I want to live a long time. After he interviewed me for his research at a university cafe, I turned the microphone on him to record this interview. I began by asking him, what are biopolitics and biocitizenship. So biopolitics is obviously comes from Michel Foucault, who talks about how biological life is involved in different political processes. So obviously an extension of that is biological citizenship, where citizenship is about the relationship between a state and citizens. So it's about how biological life is implicated within these political processes. So obviously the two situations of biopolitics and biological citizenship are very intertwined. So it's about teasing out these two interrelationships to see how practice, ideology and discourses are intertwined and performed within these social aspects. And so you're specifically looking at the market and interest and activities of people looking into anti-aging as one of your projects? Yeah, so what we're trying to do is look at how emerging treatment markets kind of shape expectations. So for example with anti-aging treatments what we mean by expectations is how people want something to be. So this is contrasted with hopes. So expectations refer to a strong belief that something will in fact happen and this is generally based upon the experience of past events. Where hope is is connected with uh, with wanting something to happen. So it's about the promise in the future or the optimism around things that they wish to happen. So hope and expectations are two different things but very interrelated to with optimism. So you might hope that they're going to stop ageing altogether but you might not expect that's going to be on the market tomorrow? Yes, exactly. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So expectation. So as you can see with definitely stem cell treatments, there's a a large, uh, I guess, area that would call you know the political economy of hope where often patients hope for a cure for their disease and they seek out unproven stem cell treatments in the hope that they might be able to gain some kind of cure or incremental improvement to their condition. And what sort of conditions are people seeking to get treated with stem cells in this way? 
uh, with stem cells? Oh, there's a wide range of treatments. So, for example, people are searching treatments for autism, MS, uh, all kinds of anything under the sun, really. So there's unproven stem cell therapy, so this would be non-homologous use of stem cells. So for example, taking stem cells from bone or embryonic stem cells, fetal stem cells, and injecting them into the body for uses that aren't related to their cause. So for example, you can take fat stem cells from people, then inject it into their knee. So this is irregular, and there's no evidence to prove this is safe and effective. But if you take kind of conventional stem cell therapy, you like to take blood stem cells from bone marrow, and inject it into the blood for blood therapies, well that's kind of a proven therapy. So stem cell tourism is when people travel overseas to attain these unproven stem cell treatments. And often these are, you know, non-homologous use therapies. So are you finding similar sort of underground, what's the word, snake oil for anti-aging treatments? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> uh, I guess at the moment we can't really be too sure because we've just started our anti-aging project. But what I can say about anti-aging is, is we've looked at the development of the anti-aging market and within this market there was a development of three stages. So from 1995 when the market for anti-aging basically began um, up until 2004, this is, was about the construction of legitimacy of anti-aging treatments. So within America, we've seen the war on anti-aging between uh, biogerontologists and the anti-aging movement, especially the American Academy for Anti-Aging Medicine. And what this kind of debate was on the, the war on aging was about trying to create legitimacy for anti-aging therapies. And there was obviously a big debate and uh, contest about what counts as legitimate or illegitimate knowledge, because often the gerontologists believe that many anti-aging treatments are considered pseudoscience. And I guess part of creating this market is to delineate, you know, what is legitimate therapy or not. But I guess another thing to also counter that is anti-aging is also a very wide social movement. So many people out there think that anti-aging therapies are a way to enhance their life and their self through particular ideas or diet things like that. So anti-aging is a very complex idea and the market kind of feeds onto these both ideas. Because what we've kind of found out in our research that anti-aging is about selling an experience, it's about selling a way or a it's to create a transformation of the self. It's not necessarily about products and services, it's selling a dream, a reality. So it's something we're trying to unpack in our research. So are there any actual legitimate anti-aging products on the market that you've come across? Are they all snake oil? <laughs> we've only just began studying the project, but what we've done was just fleshed out kind of the, the documented the beginnings of the market. So in reference to before, from 2005 to 2013, we've seen a normalisation of anti-aging treatments. And this is in part through the development of celebrity endorsement and the creation of makeover culture. So we've seen with the connection with these particular television media programs like Stream Makeover, How to Look uh, Younger in 10 Days and whatnot, a lot of these programs normalise anti-aging treatments and therefore kind of make it more accepted that people wish to change or should change their particular behaviours. Well, there's also been in Australia recently that Make Me Smarter series, which is a whole lot of techniques to improve your creativity, memory and all sorts of other things. That's kind of anti-aging. 
Yeah, oh no, I think you're right. I think they all feed into this this idea of, of hope and expectations about the, the creation of this emerging treatment market. So one thing we saw, I think it was in 2001 or two, when Sylvester Stallone was caught with 48 virus of human growth hormone in its Sydney airport. There was about a 20% rise in interest and expressions of interest in human growth hormones. So there's a, a wide public interest and appeal about these ideas. Some of this has gone way back. I mean, didn't they used to have like monkey gland treatments and things back last century? No, back 19th century. Yeah, well, yeah, I think you're right. Obviously, you know, anti-aging treatments have a very long history. But I guess one thing that our research wants to do is, is think about how this is created within a market rather than just ideas and ideologies about anti-aging. It's about, I guess, the, the materialisation of anti-aging products in the here and now. So it's only really started to turn into big Hollywood science fiction movies recently. Do you think that's going to influence the market? Well, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> I guess when we look at many kind of new emerging biotechnologies and whatnot, science fiction is often held up to be, you know, metaphors for trying to understand and make sense of these technologies, you know. So, for example, in the uh, human embryonic stem cell debate in Australia, the various kind of tropes going around, for example, one about Nazi medicine, where people often consumed that embryo farming was akin to Nazi medicine and human experimentation. And, but also there's the, the flip side as well. These, these kind of cultural or popular cultural tropes also feed into things like the Holy Grail. So things like stem cell medicine, anti-aging treatments feed into this eternal, uh, I guess, cultural hope and expectations people have on new technologies in order that they, they can change or have some kind of say in their world and hopefully maybe change their, their current circumstance, especially if they're experiencing illness. So it seems like the biggest... The public face of anti-aging that you see on TV all the time is cosmetics that claim to stop wrinkles and give you younger skin. Why do you think that's become so prevalent when it doesn't seem to work? <laughs> it's a very, very interesting idea. Uh, I guess because anti-aging is, is a marketing tool, you know, it's trying to sell a product or a service or an idea without any clearly defined product. So all these things are labelled as anti-aging, but what they're trying to sell is the idea, the dream of vitality and youth. It's, it's the marketing appeal, in, in my opinion, that people are trying to sell rather than an actual product. So on the bio-law side of things, why isn't it illegal for them to make claims that don't seem to be true? <laughs> It's a very interesting question. So for example, in a recent study we looked at anti-aging superfoods within the media. And within this, uh, many advertising or news media do make high-level uh, claims about various superfoods. So for example, some food, superfoods can cure cancer. Now if you look at the regulations, uh, a lot of these regulations, especially by Fizans, means that you cannot make these claims but people do make these claims, so there's no enforcement of these claims. So I guess in the regulation of particular anti-aging ideas, there needs to be greater enforcement of advertising standards and things like that. So what are the hopes that people have? Obviously people, people want to look younger and people want to get various health conditions cured. What do they hope for? What's the dream? <laughs> I don't know if I can really answer that one, but I guess people are, I guess, 
hopeful for a better self, a future self. People are investing in in their, I guess, their current circumstance in order for the future where they might be able to be happier, healthier, live longer, more greater quality of life. Because I guess the whole idea about anti-aging is for us to question the difference between a biological life and the social aspects of being, for example, the quality of life. You know, we can't necessarily associate anti-aging with purely biological life. We have to also deconstruct it to look at the social aspects of being as well. Only then can we get a more complete picture of life as is lived within society. I guess more generally, I guess the anti-aging market is about trying to tap into these expectations. And I guess this is one of the biggest problems with various emerging biotechnologies. So for example, if we look at stem cell tourism and emerging stem cell treatments, there's many kind of clinics. For example, there's a very famous clinic in Germany called the XL Clinic that operated in, in the early 2000s that basically exploited people's hopes. So I think when we're thinking about emerging treatment markets that we have to be very cautious about exploiting people's hopes and making sure that often these treatments are based upon evidence and various strong scientific rationale. Because I think it's, it's important that we, I guess, show or help demonstrate or deconstruct that science needs to be understood in its entirety and people shouldn't just take things at face value because often there's a, a blurring between marketing and all these other things. So for example, going back to our anti-aging uh, superfood study, we saw within our analysis of the Australian news media there's a, a blurring between advertising and the news media. So many news stories were a combination between advertorials or infotainment where they were trying to sell certain products. So in a state of, I guess, as we call it, gastroenemy, where there's often confusion about food rules or people understanding about what is healthy and what not, people look to sources like the, uh, the media for expertise or understanding of how to act in this particular behaviour. But if we have the media that's I guess co-joined with advertising that often a lot of we learn from the media is maybe different so I guess we need more of a, a critique of what's around today we need I guess greater education with scientific literacy so people can I guess help them navigate this complex landscape Well Casimir McGregor thank you very much Thank you very much for having me Cheers. That was Dr Casimir McGregor from the School of Social Sciences at Monash University investigating the sociology of stem cell tourism and the expectations of people who buy treatments to age more slowly. Next up, Glucose Glucose by Science Groove from their album Muscles and Magnets. Go to science-groove.org. Bloodborne substrate pool. Glucose, monosaccharide sugar. You're sweeter than a woman's kiss. Cause I need you for glycolysis. I just can't believe the way my muscles take you in for you. A little bit of insulin to upregulate the 
from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production with Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including two Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, two MVR in Ambaka Valley, two X in Canberra, and three MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you may like to explore the more than 700 previous episodes that are archived on diffusionradio.com. The shows are indexed by keywords so you can easily find the subjects you'd like to focus on. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. 
knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.